Hello and welcome to the Lifefulness Podcast. It is me, Sanderson here, and as ever on the Lifefulness Pod, we uh, explore the big questions in life. Uh, it, uh, I am an atheist, as is my co-host James, but we're both in the weird position of running non-religious congregations. So we look at the big issues of spirituality and meaning and belonging. But we like to sort of like look to the science and also learn from the religion. And that's what lifefulness is about, is uh, trying to get all the best parts that uh, spiritual communities and congregations have uh, sort of invented over, a, you know, several thousand years of finding out what works on humans uh, and uh, then sort of like going and spreading that, uh, spreading that good news. So that's, that's something which has got a bit of a tradition. And uh, we have conversations with amazing thinkers and doers. And the one today is an absolute peach. It is with Nora Bateson, who is a complexity and systems theorist. Sounds a bit daunting, but listen to what James had to say after the interview. I, I wanted to thank you as well because that's literally the first time I ever actually understood systems theory a little bit. And I'm not even kidding. We had to study it for my clergy training and I didn't really understand it. But now I think I have a better sense of what it is. Right. So that is, James has got so many degrees. He went to Harvard, he's got a doctorate at Harvard, and yet it was this conversation which helped him understand what systems theory and complexity theory is all about. And what's amazing about Nora is that she explores this, one, through the lens of her family, because, I mean, that's how we start this pod. She goes through her father, her grandfather, her great-grandfather. These guys are all total academic legends in different ways. We got surprised. I set up the question because I sort of knew some of the things, but that was as nothing as to what they did. And then she sort of like really explores what complexity means and how it how it can impact everyone's life. Like it's, uh, you know, it sounds academic, it sounds abstruse, but it can really be transformative in the day-to-day and also has... Hold on for uh, advertising the functional part of the podcast. It also has like huge implications for the work, huge implications for how you live your life. It's super practical. And uh, yeah, I am sure you're going to love it. So without further ado or a don't, I am going to give you the gift of Nora Bateson. Welcome, Nora, to the Lifefulness Podcast. It is wonderful to have you here. Uh, how are you today, Nora? I'm good, except for getting up at 2.15 in the morning, like Marky Mark, to work out. You know, that's the one thing that <laughs> wow. sets me back dedication. a little. No, I'm good, and I'm um, just happy to be here and, and looking forward to this, so... That's great. And so you are, I mean, I'd like, I'd like to sort of know where, uh, how you describe yourself as well, but you're a sort of systems theorist and sort of complexity practitioner. Don't worry, listeners, that will mean something uh, in the end. But like, yeah, I was worrying there. I'm like, I'm already a bit behind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like the, the world is getting more complicated than ever. And we're going to work out how that can really add to your life and how you can end up tackling that. Or not even tackling it, accepting it, loving it, whatever it might be. But before we get there, Nora, I'd love to ask you our question. We always ask people, what was the religious, spiritual and philosophical background 
to your childhood? The religious, spiritual, philosophical background to my childhood was definitely walking in the redwoods, um, camping with my father, being in nature, studying nature, reading poetry, studying art, um, and just basically taking the the time to imagine and perceive things in their rich nest of relationships, right? Because you could see a rose, right? A rose mm. is a rose is a rose, and it could just be a rose, and you could think it's a beautiful rose. By any other name. And and then you could also look at that rose and start to see the relationship between the stem and the leaves and the petals, and you could see the, the symbology of the of the rose and the relationships of love and so on and so forth and the thorns and the plant and the soil that that rose is, mm. is grown in and the other organisms that are in relationship to that rose, the aphids and the, the butterflies and the, all the things that are in that rose garden. The time that someone spends in that garden gathering their themselves and their centeredness or their right the generations before and after that cultivated those roses so i guess what i'm getting at is that when you start to look into this world of relational process there's uh an endless an endless responding and crossing and overlapping and interacting and living together. And, and, and that that is a, it's not a, a lazy kind of acceptance or surrender. It's a very rigorous one. And already, I think in answering that question, you've gone and shown why, how like these ideas, complexity, science, systems theory, stuff which seems quite obscure is in fact when you go what I love about your work is that it actually becomes a way of being and when you were one thing I really was drawn to is that your way of speaking about it is like like in our podcast we often talk about like this idea of secular spirituality and it you know you are can it's a different way of being and so uh yeah and uh, we, because we go and look at sort of uh, religion and what lessons we can learn, I'd love to ask you, like, what is the number one lesson that you think that you could learn for, or that we could learn from religion? I, I guess there's a couple of things. And the the cynical one is that I don't think religion makes you a nicer person. So that that has to come from you. Then the, the less cynical thing that we can learn from religion, I think, is... Uh, how important it is to have a realm of life that is sacred. Um, if nothing's sacred, we're in big trouble. Yeah, and so we always ask people about their uh, sort of philosophical and spiritual background, but uh, we're going to ask you to expand on that because also you come from a family which has sort of... <laughs> invented and revolutionized several fields at a time. And that's something in your, when you talk about your work, that you frequently place it in that context. And it would be great to, once of just to speak our, talk our listeners through, uh, you know, your family, and then, yeah, talk about how that's influenced your work, because it is fascinating. 
Yeah, I, I, I thank you for that opportunity too. It's, um, it's a lot to uh, carry, and it's a, an absolute honor to do so. So both of those are, are there, and um, the more I learn, and the deeper I dig, and the further back I go hunting, the the more I am really in awe of the the work that both my father and grandfather and then his father before him, it goes way back. Give us a run through then from, uh, you know, of the your father, grandfather and the like, because I've, I've, that's, uh, it's I know it, you know it, but our listeners uh, don't yet. So I'm just going to ask you to. Okay, so. The, the way back, William, there's William, William, and then there's Gregory. And the, the William, the first William Bateson, he was at Cambridge. And, and, you know, as an interest to your work, I think he was the one who actually made it so that Cambridge Dons didn't have to be um, uh, priests. So he, he, he separated. No way. Yeah. That's he's, so cool. He's the person that made it so that there was secular science. And that, by the way, that's amazing. That like, so we're James and I. We always talk about like secular church and secular congregations. That will have been as lunatic an idea as someone saying, "You know what? Maybe you can be a teacher at a university and not be a priest." And they're like, "Oh, come on, come on, William B. That's nuts." But yeah, these things change. Well, and and that was, uh, you know, a revolutionary thing to to be bringing in, and and I think your word is better. It was impossible. It was unheard of. It was unimaginable, and so then William came along, and William was also at Cambridge, and and William is um, most sort of known for being the person that coined the term genetics. So that's a William Bateson word. So that's he brought that word into the world. And that's he, nuts. I feel we have to stop on that. I, think, I can't believe. Do you feel? I mean, do you feel pressure when you're just writing an essay or making a tweet? Yeah. Yeah. What to invent yeah. a new word? Yeah, every to tweet. be to invent genetics or something else like that. Or at least not to you know piss off my ancestors by being. Uh, you know, somehow less than, or, you know, I feel like I have to show up for sure. I hate that term show up, but I, I, I do feel it. I absolutely feel it. No slouching around. No. And then there's Gregory. Wait, we're not going to. No, sorry. Oh God almighty. What did he do? <laughs> so William was super cool. And, and probably, uh, the most kind of punk rock of all of the Batesons, even though I was the one that came in in the 80s and got to wear the boots. But in in the real spirit of it, William was probably the most hardcore. He, um, you know, he was in coining the term genetics, studying hereditary uh, behavior and, and characteristics and how inheritance and how things were passing down, and he was a biologist, and so on and so forth. 
which I just want to reframe for one second for you is another way of looking at this question that we're all asking right now, which is how do systems change? Okay. And he discovered very early on, before the turn of the century, he was using words like systems and interdependency, and he was really puzzled about how to talk about evolution when all the organisms were changing at the same time in relationship to each other. And he came into this conundrum. Um, and when I say there's something sacred, this is the type of thing that in my family was the basis of this awe, of this sense of uh, don't mess with this because it's sacred. These, uh, you know, you look at a meadow and you can look at all the organisms and you can trace them back and forth and you can see how the organisms have changed. But what you can't see, even in today's scientific research processes, is how they changed in relationship to each other. How much of their changes were changes in, in their own organism and how much of those changes was produced through the um, through the relationship, through the interrelational contextual things that they were in, right? How, like if you look at Sanderson, how is, and I advise that you do, how is Sanderson's difference in being in the world part of what came before? And how is the way that you're in the world different, both physically, physiologically, mentally, emotionally, you know, professionally, whatever, uh, based on your relationship with the world that you're in. And if you look at it, even through those personal lenses, you get to this place of going, how are we going to work this out? And especially, how are you going to measure it? How are you going to define it? And, and at that point, you start to think about, well, why actually do we want to measure it? That's exactly the question that I had. I was yeah. like, you don't want to... Like, I'm a comedian. It's like the uh, analysing comedy is like dissecting a frog. You know, it's excellent, but the frog dies. <laughs> exactly. So, so again, back to this notion of something is sacred. Mm. Don't mess with it. Meanwhile, the rest of his colleagues, in, or most of them, in that era were focused on eugenics. Okay, eugenics is about, right? He's at the core of, of genetics. It's the turn of the century. This is, this is the moment when eugenics is the darling of science. All the funding, all the interest, everybody wants to figure out, this is global, not just in some countries. Everybody wants to figure out how to make the more perfect human specimens so that those specimens can make the more perfect human society. What could go wrong? So, so, but William was like, no, this is a violation. This is a vulgarity. This is a horrible thing to do. And if you do this, things are going to go terribly wrong because it's only a matter of time before somebody thinks that everyone should be like them. And this is going to be horrifying. And this, he said that, that in like 1905. So this is a long time before Mein Kampf comes out. It's a long time before all that we know was going to happen started happening. And he was trying to fight it. And he got absolutely eviscerated for it because he stepped away from the, the uh, you know, the, the momentum of a culture, right? And, and so we think about science as being somehow different from culture, but how different from economy, how different from politics. I mean, when you start to see how these things are all reflecting each other, 
you're kind of back at that question about the meadow of where's the change actually coming from. So as one guy, he couldn't change it. He lost that battle. But he was fighting on other fronts. And another front that he was fighting on was actually bringing women into Cambridge. And so when you look at the history of, uh, you know, bringing the female students into Cambridge, there's, it's like this much documents and, and stuff. And, and, and half of it is coming from William. When you approach an institution, are they like, oh, Christ, it's another Bateson? What are they going to change? What are they going to change now? First, it was like the atheists, then the women. Ugh. You know what I learned from my ancestors is just stay out of there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> just, you know, there's another lane. You don't have to do your work inside academia. I love being in relationship to academia, but I don't want to be inside academia. There's no part of me that longs for that, that credibility or that trap. And I think it's both. Yeah, I seem like, I, I mean, there's lovely people who are academics. Your vibe isn't just necessarily giving that vibe off. So, so he did that. And then he, he actually left Cambridge. They offered him the first chair of genetics. He'd left. He walked out of the Royal Society of Science and he turned down knighthood because he said, I, I will, he had absolutely zero faith in the establishment. And he just said, I don't want my ideas to be associated with any of this in the times to come. Well, I mean, I went and did some research, but I did not. Uh, I'm now trying to like uh, match this sort of punk rock image and all these things he did with the pictures of him, like in his waistcoat and looking like every other sort of person in the Rutherford lab at Cambridge. And then, uh, but no, there was a very different fire burning there. One time he... Uh his wife, Beatrice. So he surrounded himself with very strident women. And um, he, his wife, Beatrice, helped with his research and his sisters were in on it. And um, one time they had this dinner party and, and all these very important people came to dinner and Beatrice loved to smoke cigars. And there were all these important people there. So she didn't smoke her cigar. And Williams said, you know, why aren't you having your cigar? And, and she said, well, mm, you know, I just, we'll just wait till they go home. And William was furious. And he said, if you can't be who you are and have your cigar with them here, they're not friends of ours and sent them all home immediately. Whoa. <laughs> you see what I mean? He was, he was hardcore. So he started his own laboratory. They started working with a whole different way of looking at how the communication was taking place between organisms in ecosystems. And, and then that research sat he, he for a hundred years because he was the guy that got it wrong. Because he kept saying, you know, this, this is not how it's working. It's working in, in relationship. It's working in, in contextual process. And we have to be studying this. And everyone was like, how are we going to control it? How are we going to measure it? How are we going to define it? How are we going to know what's true? And he was like, well, you're going to have to know that this is what's true. But then and also, this is like in the, in the more like people have found the ways to like see some of that in these plant roots, these tree roots, which it turns out are 
passing nutrients between each other. They're like the sort of support team on the Tour de France going, do you want some gel or a like little top up to the other trees? And it's, uh, yeah, it's like there's far more communication than ever previously thought. It just goes to show you find what you're looking for. And so a hundred years went by where what we were, what science, what was being looked for was not that communication. So there was a, there was a shift and um, it came, I think, you know, epigenetics was at the beginning of that in the late, in the nineties, it kind of came in um, more, more popularly. But um, then my dad, Okay, so then Gregory comes along, and Gregory's born into this this family, and he's at Cambridge too, and um, and both of his big brothers died. So Gregory was supposed to be the baby. He was gonna like slide out the back. He was the the rebel of the family, and his big brother John was the golden child, and he died in the war. And then Martin was the middle guy, and he was wanting to be a poet. And William didn't approve. He didn't think he was a very good poet. And he also didn't think, this is fascinating, he didn't think Batesons had any business being artists. Because art and nature share the characteristic of uh, being capable of genius, Okay, this took me a while to figure out what he was talking about, but he, he suggested that art and nature could hold genius and science would never achieve it, but should always be inspired by it. So what does that mean? It means that in, in nature and in art, there are multiple processes taking place simultaneously. Right? You look at a piece of art, I look at a piece of art, or you listen to a piece of music, and I listen to a piece of music, and it's not the same music. We can hear the same notes, but it's going to respond very differently. We will respond very differently to it, and it will change how we respond to each other. Right? It might, we could listen to a piece of music, and it could change how we might respond to somebody two days from now. Okay, so and you can listen to a piece of music now and listen to it two years from now and really learn about all you've learned. And, you know, there's there's so much that can happen. I suddenly get the hidden meaning of jump around. You know, it's not just about jumping around. Jump up, jump up, jump down. It's it's also about (laughs) the getting down. People are so focused on the jumping up, but actually... Mm. It's the getting down, and that's something which has been a big revelation for me. But so carry on. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating, right? So, so I, I hope that in all this, we're also getting a sense of not only the history of the early systems and cybernetics and complexity thinking, but also kind of how how it is to devote your life to it, and it's kind of punishing, actually. Because nobody wants to hear about this stuff. It's inconvenient. It gets in the way of projects that have nice linear defined goals and deliverables and measurables and controls. And, and, and when you're actually working with living complex systems, whether it's a meadow or a family or a society or whatever, it's not going to be like that because life is lifing, right? And you cannot control it. And so, 
attempts to control have been made along the way. And of course, eugenics was one of those. And it's a catastrophe. It's a catastrophe that to this day, there are there's so much pain and trauma and shame and, and, and hurt that has come out of that. It's crossed generations. It's changed our, our, but also learning, maybe some learning, learning maybe not to do that, but other people haven't learned not to do that. So, so Gregory, um, Gregory went to New Guinea to study anthropology. And, uh, that's where he met his, uh, his soon-to-be wife, Margaret Mead. And this was in the, the 1929. It's, it was, everything is still a long time ago. Almost a hundred years ago. And and there, uh, they, along with um, another anthropologist, Rio Fortune, who was actually Margaret's husband at the time, they began to study the culture of the New Guinea peoples. They were fighting for the possibility of the perception of other people around the world having intelligent, complex cultures, which at that moment, 1929, this is war, right? Yeah, people, people thought that the Greeks or Italians were sort of maybe sort of uh, not really sort of complex cultures, sort of to get alone what uh, might be happening in uh, uh, what might be happening in New Guinea. So these young people, they were 25, 26, if you can imagine, they started to fight for and, and develop a, a, a circuit of a milieu, a circuit of friends and colleagues who were going to begin to really question and take on um, the beginnings of fascism. Like, how do you actually deal with fascism? And, and so what they thought was that the best thing to do was actually to address the issue at the level of what is the, the, the way that people think that, that makes them susceptible to fascist ideas. I think I'm just going to sort of pause here uh, because I think this is super important because it is when reading a, uh, about your work, you talk a lot about language. And so we're now going to be hitting this idea that uh, you know what? Like, there's uh, we can't really measure things, and you know, like your uh, grandfather saying that these different objects actually there's uh, all these different relationships between them, and not only is can we not measure it, maybe sort of measuring things isn't actually a useful way to go about it because it's a sort of desire for control, which isn't really there because the world is so much more complex than we might think, and then. And so it suddenly it does start to get practical. And I think this one around fascism is super interesting because it's like really saying that like that some philosophy of language, this wanting to put labels on things. And this is my understanding actually leads to this idea that we're separate. And then once we're separate, you can go and say you attack you, you attack these people. Let's all uh, let's all have a half a pint of eugenics and uh, we'll be home by Christmas. Uh, yeah, I, d I don't know. It's just like a fascinating moment where like these big philosophical ideas, you know, become real. And particularly in this moment, that question is fucking annoyingly still alive. Yeah. Uh, and it, it has to do with this idea that if you can perceive things as objectified, you can exploit them. If you can take things out of their nest of relationships, that rose we started with, 
If you can take it out of its nest of relationships, you can stop seeing all the damage that can be done to those nest of relationships when you alter or control or move the rose in a way that suits you. This is how I want it to be. But what about all these other organisms and relational processes that are deeply intertwined? And so, you know, we this is what we do. You go to the grocery store, you buy food. It's been removed from all its relationships and it's in the packaging and you can't see the damage. I'm sorry, I didn't want to jump in, but I was just wondering whether you're talking a lot about relationships and the connections between things. And I was wondering if that's part of your interest in in your own work with systems theory and complexity, whether it comes from that concern with relationships. Absolutely. I mean, that's the core. And what is that? Like, if I don't know anything about systems theory or complexity, like what do they explain like I'm five of those concepts for our listeners who are listening to this and be like, I'm so lost. Mm. Well, uh, let's see. Let's think about um, mental health. Okay. Right now we're dealing with the COVID era and, um, and it's been very apparent that um, that this little virus is a lot of things. It's it's certainly it can it can get into your body and make you sick. Okay, certainly it has created a huge economic shift. It's cultural, right? Every culture has responded differently to the to the virus in one way or another. Um, and it's, uh, it's about technology and science. Okay. It's about, um, media and communication. It's about families, right? People are stuck in their house with their kids and they're suddenly really with their families. It's about the intergenerational relationships how you think about the elders in your life, or maybe you are an elder, how you're thinking about your relationship with the younger people in your life. Um, it's about history and how, how, what has come before that people are covering up or, or trying to legitimize or whatever. What has come before? Who? It's about identity. Who are you? How are you going to respond in this? Who, you know, if, if your identity is mixed up in your profession and you happen to be working in the tourist trade, a lot of us who were, you know, on stages, Sanderson, um, you know, people who were doing public engagements, uh, who are you? Like, who, who are you now? How do you figure out who you are in the world? So, so is it about, that we're not just kind of disconnected individuals, but we're defined by, to at least to some extent, the relationships that we're in and the systems we're a part of? Uh, I wouldn't even say defined by, I'd say you are. How, how, which part of me is my economics or my culture or my religion or my media technology identity or my like where, where where's that i don't know i can't take that bit out fix it rearrange it and put it back it's all wrapped in me and my education okay so our education systems teach us that everything is separate and and then in this moment we've had to really take a look at uh-oh 
how is the health care actually wrapped into the economy, wrapped into family, wrapped into, and all this, I was on my way to mental health, right? So mental health is, is so often um, caught in the, the trap of needing to create a, an identified diagnosis. And those diagnoses can be very helpful, but not when they actually obscure the contexts that are producing the the effects of of the of the depression of the anxiety of the the issues that people are facing and so, so. if if uh, the sort of explain like I'm five version is it the uh, complexity and complexity science and systems theory says that we are all far more, we are all impossibly connected to each other in a way that uh, sort of means planning, certain types of linear planning are impossible, that certain ideas of control go out the window, that, uh, you know, that the trying to find solutions is complex, not merely complicated, that it's a very different, like it's a very different way of looking at the world. Very, and a very different way of approaching it. And what I, what, one thing which I find, uh, really, like it, when you speak, it's almost as, like, again, I come back to this, uh, spirit, this idea of spirituality, is that, like, we are, people long for connection. Like, we long to feel connected to the world, to something bigger than us, to uh, our community, to, and yet so what complexity science does is say, oh, no, you are. Like you on your own doesn't even exist. So here we are, more connected to everything in the world. And yet when you speak about it, it also shows that if you really take that on board, you can feel it. You can look in the meadow and realize how it's connected to you. It's like in some ways, it's yeah, it, yeah, it really is a way of being. And I think that is relevant to everyone who is listening, not only someone who's planning an anti-smoking campaign or government mental health rollout or whatever that might be. And, and I think the issue is that it's really easy to see these um, things that bubble up. Okay, there are consequences that bubble up. And we, because we can see them, identify them as the problem. Okay, so here we have whatever it is, climate change, poverty, um, issues with education, broken health systems, um, gender inequality, we have racism, we have right all of these things. All of these are, are problems, are situations that are coming out of uh, the conditions and the contexts, multiple, that have been brewing for a long time. And what we see is the consequence. And then we think we need a solution to the problem. So we address that like it was a, you know, a pimple on the end of your nose. The pimple's not the problem. Probably the fact that you haven't slept and you've been eating chocolate and potato chips and that you, you know, your heart's broken and you haven't taken a shower in three days is probably more to do with the pimple than the pimple. So it's that shift in focus of looking at these things that are consequences as the problems to look, finding a way to, to respond to them, which addresses the complexity, right? So when you, it, and, and this is what permaculture is all about. This is what, you know, all kinds of sort of more uh, 
it it takes longer to produce solutions that actually deal with the system. But when you do, they last. That, that was for I've been on a number of startup accelerators and the like. And when they go and show their methodology for solving problems, I'm like, are you insane that this is going to be something which solves it? Or someone's been building some app which is designed for to like go and help driverless cars park and then it doesn't quite pick up so they're like this could also be used for hospitals you're like how on earth can you not be thinking about all the different ways that that could go and impact everyone else and I guess that's like an example of where complexity like having that mindset will mean that you will act differently James what do you think would be a because again with that like uh idea of getting to how this affects people in their lives what do you think yeah that's kind of what I'm thinking of like how how do you to kind of take it down from the theoretical level where we are now to the how do people put this into practice you know in our own lives is this something that can help me deal with my problems which are many you know any listener of the podcast will know there's tons of them but can I use the ideas that you've been talking about to to help me Well, you certainly don't need any help with jumpers at the moment, James. I'm just going to say that is very nice. I, I wore this jumper again, Sanderson, because you like May, it so it's, it's, lovely, it's really nice. The lovely little thank leather you. shoulder patches. Thank you, thank you, We're thank into yeah. it. Yeah, I'm really leaning into my soon-to-be middle-aged professor shirt. <laughs> well, it looks good on you. Yeah. I think I forgot the question before I intervened. To It was practical but, yeah, things. How do you put this into practice? And presumably your work is related to, it's not just talking about these ideas in an intellectual context, but is actually helping people and organizations do something with them. Hmm. I mean, the thing is, is that when you start to perceive these processes anywhere, okay, in anything, in your garden, in your family, in your community, in your, when you start to perceive those relational things taking place, those connections. Um, and and I, I'm always a little careful with the word connection because so much of a connection looks like, you know, a plug. It's like a, a line that's a connection and there's no line here. These connections are rife and, and rich in wiggly, squiggly, messy, swampy process, right? So so if you can begin to perceive those relational processes, you just do things differently. It's not like, and then you will have a better workout, Marky Mark, or then you will, you know, be able to control your teenager or fix your marriage, but you will perceive all of those things completely differently. It's like if you sit down to draw a map of a forest or a town, okay, just think about what you do. You go, you get a piece of paper, you get a pen, you get some, you know, some topographical information. You have a whole different set of approaches. If you go out the door and you walk into the territory, you do something very different. Everything about the way you enter that experience is different. So it's a, it's about, you know, the example I sometimes use is this, is that if you don't see those relationships, you're liable to destroy them without meaning to. 
But once you see them, you're more careful. If you're walking down the street and there's dog poop on the street and you don't see it, you're liable to step in it. But the second you see it, it actually kind of becomes hard to step in it. I think, I think there's also something where, like one practical thing, when you gave that example of your grandfather saying, I'm not going to get into this eugenicist, uh, there's no I in eugenics, uh, as he probably didn't say, uh, because it actually doesn't work as a pun, because there is. But anywho. Uh, the, uh, Fail. I, I mean, you know, but there is a you. Uh, anyway, it still doesn't work. Uh, the, That's okay. Uh, the, actually, that sort of, the sacred, that idea of life being sacred is actually almost a felt sense. Like he like felt it was wrong because he knew how important all those different interrelationships are. You're never, you're never going to stand on stage and say uh, one of the reasons to you should get into complexity theory is so that you will not accept eugenics. But it's like becomes, goes and maybe you will, but it will go and influence all of the different things that you do. And even there was in some of that, like for me, and this might be why I think the word connection doesn't have that association of a link or a rope or something else, uh, in, to my mind, and language is bullshit. But uh, the, so I'm not stuck on that. The, uh, but it's really a way of feeling as much as a way of thinking. It's like once these things happen, uh, once you are able to like take them on and like get it in an embodied sense, then it's a, it's a different way of being. Absolutely. And you got to remember, this is coming from a family that is hardcore science, right? So, so the, the thing that you're talking about is a kind of humility that comes with that endless inquiry. Okay. It's that knowing after 87 years of studying this little bug or this process or this, that you're still just barely a beginner. And that's something that is really fascinating to me, because I think that some of these ideas we've been discussing could seem to some listeners with a more scientific mindset as a bit kind of airy and a bit potentially kind of not very verifiable. But coming from this very concrete scientific background, it kind of gives it a weight and a and a legitimacy in my mind that's quite different to that. It's just James just slamming me, by the way. Uh, just very subtly slamming me. But but coming from you, that, it's right. got some impact. Yeah, right. I would if Sanderson was saying this, I would think, what bullshit. But then there's really no. an, an interesting part in his research, and this is uh it ties in with something we spoke about two podcasts back, which when I brought it up, James did think was bullshit, uh, is this idea of God as a metaphor. He's looking at all of the connections uh, there are in the world. And, you know, we're not even going to get into when he founded cybernetics or was involved at the start. And uh, the supreme cybernetic system is beyond the self of the individual and could be equated to what many people refer to as God, though Bateson referred to it as mind. And I think there is something which is really interesting in and this is one of the reasons I think it's really worthwhile to look at religions is that like a lot of the things that you're talking about like could be used to describe God and it's almost as though like this metaphor of God is a simple way for 
humans to make sense of a world which they've got no idea how to control it. It's so much bigger than them. It's like, you've got to be totally humble. We're all connected. And when you've got that mindset, you can feel it. And then you're reacting differently, probably in a way which respects the world more because you realise that these things are sacred and connected and whatever else it means. And so, uh, again, this is not a this is not a question. It's just part of my ongoing uh, investigation of like God as a sort of primitive uh, pre-scientific metaphor, which helps you get through the world as an answer to some of the complexities and sort of pain of life. So there. But James, someone else who's smarter than me said it. So you could kind of believe it. Hey there, I'm going to interrupt for the shortest of moments because I realise I hadn't mentioned either in the intro or outro that the Lifefulness Project is not just a podcast, we're a living, breathing online community and you can go and check it out. There's a link below, lifefulness.io forward slash membership and or you can just search that link and at a time when we're super disconnected, maybe you've moved house, there's loads of reasons that we need community more than ever. Well, the life on this community is amazing and we'd love you to join. So that's it. Back to Nora. Or maybe me. Hopefully Nora. There's a lot of looking for easy answers. Um, and this is true in business. People want the five steps to success. It's true in exercise. They want the, you know, 10 things to do in a day to be you know, buff like Marky Mark. They want the, they want the, they want the easy solution. Give it linear, give it step by step, just break it down, make it easy so I can accomplish what I need to accomplish because I don't want to do all this extra work. Okay. But it's, it's that thing. Remember that, you know, karate kid movie with the wax on wax off. And it's, it's in that, that, appreciation of the nuance of, of all of these processes that are taking place. There's rigor here. And I think there's rigor in religion and there's, there's rigor in science and there's rigor. Um, and, and, and without it in any capacity, you make a mess because you just aren't careful enough and, and there's not enough humility and and so without that humility, it's pretty difficult to actually have integrity. Integrity is not a three-step program or, uh, you know, something you can just sort of, if I do half an hour of yoga every day and meditate on this thing and, you know, study this practice, then, then I'm actually a spiritual person by 9.30 in the morning, but by 12, I'm yelling at my kids and you know, lying to my spouse and, you know, making money off people who are in slavery. And but I'm a spiritual person. Mm. The I feel bad that I'm now going to ask about some of the steps that people could take, not a five step program, but just to go and make it help it to become real in people's lives. And I wanted to ask, what are the practices? Like there might be some which are involve like understanding first understanding the idea that is a sort of practice but what are the other you know you're speaking about artists like an artistic way of uh, appreciating the world there's like I'm actually really interested in how you can break down the different elements that you can do not because one size fits all but otherwise people are a bit left 
uh, at the sort of gateway of like, oh, but what do I do now? So like, what are some of the things which people can do knowing that it won't be the end in itself, but might be the start of a journey? And, uh, you know, this is the thing about complexity is that it's different for everybody. And it should be different for everybody. So for some people, listening to music is an incredible opening into what is the relationship between the notes? What's the relationship between the harmonies and the rhythms? What's the relationship between the instruments? The relationship between the musicians? The relationship between the written score and the improvisational, the live music? What's the relationship between the music and the history or the culture? Or the times, or the right, or your life. How is this piece of music relating to your life? And just in a single three-minute song, you're going to get so much. If you look for it, you'll find so. Or you could look at a meal. What's the relationship between the different flavors? What's the relationship between the different ingredients? Where did they come from? How were they grown? How who grew them? What's the relationship between? those people's families and the communities that they're in. How did these flavors come to be together historically, culturally? How is it different this time than the last time? How does it your, you know, dish taste different when you ate this other thing for breakfast? Or when you're when your heart is broken or when you're right. So so the the dish is not the dish. The the song is not the song. And then you can look at your own identity and say, you know, who am I? Am I my name? Am I this squishy stuff inside my skin? Am I my culture, my language? Am I my, my money or my profession? Am I my religion? Am I my children, my parents, my, like, where, where am I? Who am I? And when you start to do that, you see that all these things are in relationship to each other, that you can't pull yourself out of those relationships and and suddenly pretend that you are just you. Thanks so much for giving us your top three ways to uh, approach complexity. Music, food and identity is, <laughs> is not how we're going to repackage that. Uh, the, uh... But that was very helpful because I felt like suddenly I understood this focus on not just individual discrete things, but on systems as the main focus of analysis. Like that's kind of what I got out of what you were saying there is shift your attention to looking at the interconnected systems at play, not the discrete things or the things we tend to perceive as discrete things. Right. That's it. And in that process, you can point that lens anywhere. And so I tried to give you a kind of a diverse approach because I don't want you to think, oh, this is about personal development or this is about cooking or this is about art or this is about science. It's about all of it. Yeah. And I love that. So I have done workshops where, you know, we go and, you know, trying to give people that lens or like to help people go and see what it is like to go and perceive things at different levels because obviously that is a different way to go and sort of like to experience the world you know there will be someone who is a real music buff and they're gonna listen to a piece of music and it will like it's not that you're not going to get it in the same way if you don't like you know anyone can appreciate music but if you've made it your life to study that and you've got all these different memories and you were playing it when you're 
child was born, I uh, hope it wasn't too stressful for, uh, for your partner, uh, then it's just naturally going to mean more. And it's going to have, and these different lenses are going to be able to give give so much more to it. And yeah, I think that that really does bring to my, like mind, one, something practical, but then also how you know, how it will then sort of affect your whole life, whether you be at work, in your family, in your community. Uh, We are getting to the end of our time, uh, not uh, sort of on Earth, though it is all sooner for us than we we ever think. Uh, uh, And so it'd be great. Where can people go to find uh, Maximum Nora, the the Bateson super spot, the, uh, the hive, uh, the den, whichever whichever analogy works best for you. The lair, the nest. The lair, the web. Uh, I have been doing a lot of work with this thing called warm data. And we didn't really get a chance to talk about that. But that's kind of the the next realm of this work. And it's being used in lots of communities around the world to really allow groups of people to begin to um, perceive in another way. It's not hard. It's, you know, you don't have to have any education at all to do it. I work with kids and I work with, I mean, all over the place. So um, what happens there is that there are changes in the way that they are relating to the world. And those changes then become ways that the next people who are in relationship to them are slightly different from being in relationship to them. And then the next people that they're in relationship to get a sense of this, something's a little different here. There's a different kind of attention. And that is deeply connected to something that I would call I mean, it's it's learning. Maybe it's evolution. Maybe it's something sacred. Maybe it's something. Maybe it's something like art or improvisation. Maybe it's like a meadow and it's an ecology. But but anyway, there's a real shift and a healing and a, a warmth that comes out of that. So so my stuff online is at batesoninstitute.org or there's all kinds of stuff on warm data, uh, which is why I brought that up because that's probably the easiest dive in. And then there's Medium and WordPress and, I mean, you know, all over this She's internet She's got world. her own institute. Come on, guys. What more do you want? Uh, go and sign up to a warm <laughs> data lab. That's when you're going to get the uh, patented... Uh, 10-step program to perception change, <laughs> uh, which uh, will follow very clearly and is guaranteed results every time, if I've understood correctly. Uh, <laughs> Immeasurable units. Immeasurable units. And I'd like to end this uh, podcast with a blessing. And what is the blessing for Bateson? What is a unit for Bateson? Uh, you are immeasurable. Uh, your use of language and ideas brings the sacred uh, into the world in so many different ways. You're uh, somehow the spiritual inheritor, maybe even without the word spiritual, of so many uh, different traditions. 
You will be making your relationship, relations proud no matter how deep underground they are. And if they uh, believed in life after death, they'd be looking back on you very approvingly. There'd be no spinning in any graves because what you do is really important. I have loved following you online and it has been even better to meet you in e-person. And I bless you, though you have no need for it to continue doing everything you were doing before and whatever else springs to your mind or the world's mind of which we are all part. I love it. Uh, James, how was that for you? That was fascinating. Like I, I meant what I said when when I told Nora that it kind of helped me understand systems theory because this, the shift in perspective from viewing things as discrete objects that are fundamentally a single thing to looking at things as complexes of relationships, that is a, a profound shift in how you see the world that I can see being relevant in so many areas of life, including religion and spirituality. And there's a, there's almost an inherent spiritual nurse to it and that came across to me at least when Nora was speaking Uh, yeah I think in that case it's there's uh, oh what is it called Uh, I have to go and look it up but yeah there's the uh, part of the brain which when you do certain uh, rituals I can't remember which part it is uh, the uh, that it's to do with your place with place and time and uh, you can do a whole host of things and then you go and lose this sense of place and time. But what that means is you suddenly feel like connected to everything because you are no longer a discrete thing and you feel timeless. And that is one that's actually a like a far truer representation of time than we can ever sort of experience in the day to day. But it's also a far truer connection of the world. And when she was speaking about that, like the part in my head is like there are so many different practices which help foster that sense of connection and and then it isn't like a again that's the thing it's not like a nice to have it's not at all uh uh, you know go away on a mountain and just uh, come back and then get back to your job it's actually vital in this world where we're dealing with complex systems and are the linear way of sort of understanding things, which is our day-to-day way of understanding things, because we pick something up, we put it down, and that's actually how we experience the world, that, you know, by developing this sense of connection, this sense of being part of relationships, it's this like the tool you need for today. And I love this idea, because when we asked Nora, well, how do you put this all into practice? She basically said, well, just kind of think about the relationships between things that the ways that things are always enmeshed in other things and you think well that's not really going to help you know or at least i think well you know just thinking about it is not but then when you actually consider deeply what that means in terms Mm. of approaching every aspect of your life as this meal is connected to the people who made it to the people who grew it to the sun that gave it energy and life and to the universe that created the sun like you very quickly get to what sounds like quite a religious place and so it makes sense to me yeah and and again there's like techniques for that you can do that like if you want to go and like grace like 
a great opportunity to go and reflect on all the wonders and connections which have led to you getting your baked beans on toast or whatever it might be. So, uh, hey there, gang. Thanks so much for listening, James. Uh, thanks a ton. You uh, bet. It was uh, a fun the, early morning for me. Back to bed now. Uh, uh, very good. So I'm going to say goodbye to James. Ciao. Yeah, so this week on the Lifefulness Show, what's it, what's been happening? Uh, you know what? I've sort of like, like I've done a number of different things. I can't remember what I spoke about, but it's like, yeah, I think I spoke about it yeah, last week, like just putting systems into place and, uh, you know, through the wonder of Upwork, found some amazing freelancers and countries across the world. Right now, I am the most sort of uh, inclusive and diverse employer uh, in uh, <laughs> uh, of any UK startup. Uh, it's just me and sort of people from uh, across Africa, Latin America, uh, Asia, and yeah, really helping to put in place the different uh, parts of what I do. And it sounds so obvious to people who haven't done it before, who have done all this stuff before, but uh, uh, it's a huge turnaround for me because by being able to go and get these systems up and running, uh, I no longer have this constant background stress, uh, which is sort of caused by ADHD and all manner of other, and it's sort of knock-on effects of a lifetime of worry, which I'm dealing with, which I am working on. Uh, so, yeah, that feels good. Uh, the Then the Lifefulness small groups are coming together. Uh, we've got Lifefulness 101 is continuing to run. And even there, I was a little bit, you know, I've just been like these emails which I mean to send on one day, then oh, that just slips. And so I was just getting beating myself up about that. But then I thought there's other ways to make sure that everyone has a really amazing time. So I, you know, just uh, offered all the people on it, like sort of uh, extra free one-on-one -on -one coaching so that they are, uh, you know, just a really going over deliverer. Uh, but that felt good. Uh, so it's like a realization that I'm never going to be the person who, uh, crosses all the T's and dots all the I's and lowercase J's uh, the first time round. But there's other ways that I could make sure that everyone had a great time. And that was, uh, that was a useful little thing. Uh, yeah, uh, keep an eye out for various uh, social media channels and the like. We're going to go and relaunch some of the lifefulness uh membership and all that stuff you can still join go to lifefulness.io forward slash membership link below and uh thanks so much for listening uh you can go and find james croft uh online thanks james thanks so much mavs the producer who's gonna turn this podcast around in record time cheers mate then thank you to roman rapak and miro shot who created the music that you're listening to right now